We serve a wonderful Savior, right? Amen. It's been a real joy to spend time with many of you this week and fellowship and just to enjoy all of the blessings that God has given us here and this great land and in this community. And as I ascend this sacred desk, as it used to be called, I must say, as the Apostle Paul, that I do so in weakness and in fear and trembling as the Lord's servant, because as always, His Word is at stake. And also, the souls of men and women hang in the balance. And yet, I also do it with great joy because I find comfort in knowing that He has chosen not many that are wise, not many that are noble, not many that are mighty, but He has chosen, chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And He's even said that He uses the foolishness of preaching the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And so as I come before you once again, I do so with reverence and with humility, knowing that it is my task to be the Lord's spokesman, but I also do with great joy because I believe the Lord has many wonderful things for us in store as we look into the Word of God this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And we find ourselves in verses 17 through 19. And I've entitled my message to you this morning, The Scarlet Thread, Final Prediction. Because what we will see is all through the Word of God, there is a scarlet thread of redemption through the blood of Christ. And this morning we find the final prediction of that particular atoning work of Christ that comes from the word of the Lord Jesus or from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. So follow along in verse 17 of Matthew's gospel. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Charles Spurgeon has well said, study Christ. The most excellent of all the sciences is the knowledge of a crucified Savior. He is most learned in the university of heaven who knows most of Christ. He who hath known most of him still says that his love surpasseth knowledge. Behold him then with wonder and behold him with thankfulness. This morning we will sail out into the depths of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue to study Matthew's gospel that depicts him as the sovereign king. And it's important for you to understand the big picture of Scripture. And I want to kind of take you through <clears throat> some of the great biblical truths that we find in the Word of God. I'm not going to take time to stop and give you references on many of these passages. 
But I want to give you the big picture of God's plan of redemption. And we will see that in such a way that will help us better understand the text that we have before us. As we look at the Word of God, we see that there are two dominant themes throughout Scripture. Number one, God is going to redeem His people. And throughout Scripture, we see Him therefore described as a lamb. But also, we see a second theme, that He is going to restore a kingdom. And therefore, we will see Him described as a lion. So sometimes He is a lamb and a servant. Other times, He is a lion and He is a king. Now, the disciples, as we come to this particular portion of Scripture, the disciples that are following along with Him wanted Him to be the lion, not the lamb. They wanted to cash in on all the kingdom blessings. They were excited about that, and rightfully so, but they did not understand that Jesus had to come first as a lamb. And certainly as we look at Scripture, we can look at the prophetic literature, especially the book of Revelation, and we see the Lord Jesus Christ there in His exaltation as He comes again as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. But as we look at the Gospels where we're at today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and of course today we're just in Matthew, we see Him not as in His exaltation, but in His humiliation. And so before we examine this very simple yet profound text before us today, which again was the third and final prediction of His coming suffering and death and resurrection, I wish to take you on a journey back into time and hopefully we will get lost once again in the glory and the majesty and the excellency and the sovereignty of God So follow along as I just ramble here a bit for you. In eternity past, before time even existed, the Word of God tells us that the triune God set into motion what today we call history. And all of history is really His story, the story of Jesus Christ. This was a period of time in which he would glorify himself. All of history is meant to glorify the triune God. Word of God tells us that before time even began, before anything was ever even created, he fashioned man in his image. And he gave him the capacity to choose, knowing full well that ultimately man would choose not to glorify him. And before the first man was even created, the Bible tells us that he knew that man would succumb to sin, that man would violate his holy standard, that he would violate his law, that he would suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us, even though that which would be known about God would be evident within them, certainly evident through reason as a reasonable person looks at the intricacies of creation but also evident because of conscience, because every person has a conscience and is aware of their sinfulness and aware of their guilt before a holy God. And God knew that most would refuse to give Him glory and would rather choose to sin instead. That's why in Romans 9.22 He describes 
people as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But he decreed for a few, relatively few in comparison, for a few people to repent of their sin and to give him glory. Therefore, again, in Romans 9:23, we read that he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called. And in eternity past, knowing that all would sin and fall short of the glory of God, he made a provision to satisfy his justice, knowing again that man would violate his holy standard after he had created him. He also made a plan to put his righteousness and his glory and his grace on display. And therefore, we read in Scripture that the second member of the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, agreed to be the propitiation for divine justice, which means the satisfaction or the appeasement. And so the triune God determined that the invisible God would someday be made visible in the glory of the incarnation, the incarnation of Christ, and in the cross. In fact, it was in the or by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Christ was crucified. And for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we can look at Scripture now through the eyes of history and through the eyes of faith, and we can see that a scarlet thread of redemption was first fashioned by a loving and a righteous God. It was first fashioned in the secret chambers of his throne room before anything was ever even created. A scarlet thread of the blood of Christ that would someday pay the penalty for sin. Sins that would be committed in the past, present, and future for all who believe. In fact, we read in Revelation 13 that the Lamb of God was slain when? Before the foundations of the world. In fact, it was then that God decreed it. And now we look back 2,000 years ago and it actually happened. Peter even speaks of Jesus' preordained death in Acts 2.23. He says that he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. I recall Peter and John, and you may recall the story after they had been threatened, they cried out to the Lord for boldness. And in their prayer, they described the mistreatment that they received from the hands of, of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and even the people of Israel. And in that prayer, they acknowledged in Acts 4.27 that they were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predetermined to occur. So, friends, before there was a past, present or future, the satisfaction for God's offended holiness was decreed. And made applicable for all of history. And so the promise of a scarlet thread was decreed and was promised, but was yet to be woven in the fabric of redemptive history. And on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus, although he knew that all of humanity would, that he would eventually create, would become spiritually dead and refuse to give him glory, he mercifully chose some through no merit of their own 
to be his sacred possession. In fact, we read in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4, he chose them, and he goes on to say, before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined them to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will and to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In fact, Revelation 13:8 says, that he wrote the names of those undeserving sinners that he would choose in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, obviously, the inscrutable mysteries of God are beyond our comprehension. But truth is truth, whether we understand it or not. And I hope as you can begin to see as we look at Scripture as our only reliable source of truth, that God is a sovereign God that set into motion a plan of redemption. And as astounding as it may seem, certain sinners were selected to be saved by grace alone, even before they were created. In 2 Timothy 1.9, we read that He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which, would, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, literally before time began. In fact, in Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, those chosen of God were promised before time began. By, a, by the triune God who cannot lie. They were chosen as a special love gift among the triune Godhead. We even read in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that before we were even created, every aspect of our appearance, our personalities, the color of our eyes, the color of our hair, our height, everything about us, was conceived in the mind of God. For Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then, my friends, if you follow the detailed genealogical record of the book of Genesis, we can trace back to that glorious day when God created the heavens and the earth and man, which would have been approximately 7,000 years ago. And he said that all of creation was very good. But sometime at the end of creation, another creature that God created chose not to give God glory. His name was Lucifer, the Shining One. And in Ezekiel 28, we read about him as the anointed cherub who covers he was the one who had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Whom the Lord said, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And because of his pride, because he wanted to be like God, because he wanted to usurp God's throne, he fell under the condemnation of God and he was cast from his presence and Jesus even said in Luke 10:18 that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Revelation 12:4 tells us that even a third of the angels fell with him. Those maniacal deceivers who exist in the world today to deceive men with lies, deceptive lies and counterfeit spirituality. 
They were all bent then as they are now on dethroning the living God. But all of this was a part of God's eternal plan. None of it caught God by surprise. In fact, as we study Scripture, we see that God is glorified even in His wrath. And apart from sin and evil, He would never be able to display His grace and His mercy upon those whom He chose to grant it. And as we go on through Scripture, we see that God then allowed Satan to come and to confront Eve, disguising himself as an angel of light, speaking through a serpent. He deceived her with lies that appealed to her lusts, that appealed to her pride, and likewise that of Adam. But again, none of this caught God by surprise. In Genesis 3, dear friends, we see once again the scarlet thread of the blood of Christ, a promised lamb that would come, because in Genesis 3.15, we read that after this original sin in the garden, Satan and Adam and Eve were cursed, paradise was lost, and because of their sin, Adam and Eve lost their innocence, and their innocence was replaced with guilt and with shame, and frantically... And in vain, they tried to soothe their conscience by covering themselves, covering their nakedness with fig leaves. And as they stood naked and in shame before a holy God, guilty before a holy God, covered only with the fig leaves of their human efforts, God cursed them. But in Genesis 3.21, we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You see, although Adam and Eve should have died, we witness there the genesis of divine grace. The love of God was on that day set into motion in a very tangible way. And in that particular historical event, in that scenario, we see the need for a substitute that needed to die to cover sin. A shadow of a coming Redeemer that would one day come and make full atonement for sin. And thus we begin to trace the scarlet thread of the blood of Christ. Man could not cover his sin on his own. His best efforts would never do. So God had to provide a substitute. And thus an innocent animal was killed by God Himself. And as its blood was spilt upon the ground... God took the garment and covered their shame. There, Adam and Eve witnessed an innocent death and saw a crimson stain that was required for their sin. And there on that glorious day, the story of redemption that God had sovereignly ordained was beginning to play itself out. And God said in verse 15 of that text that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, referring to Satan and his followers and Eve and hers. And he said, he, referring to Christ, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head. In other words, Christ is going to give you a fatal blow. And you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. And indeed, all Satan could ever do was make Christ to suffer and friends, here we have what the old theologians would call the proto-evangelium or the first mention of the good news of ultimate salvation that would come through a Savior who would suffer, 
but ultimately conquer Satan. And there we have again the first inkling of this promised Savior. And as we go on in Scripture, we begin to see the scarlet thread take form in a new way in the story of Cain and Abel. Remember in Genesis 4, unlike Cain, Abel obeyed God and brought him a sacrifice that was acceptable to him. In verse 4 of that chapter, we read that Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord God had, had regard for Abel and for his offering. So there again, we see the scarlet thread of Christ's blood being woven through the pages of Holy Writ. And here again, we see the need for the shedding of blood to make atonement for sin. Abel's sacrifice was merely a picture of a sacrifice yet to come. Clearly a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in many texts or from many texts, especially Hebrews 12, 24 where we see that Abel's sacrifice only provided a temporary covering, but Christ Jesus' blood sacrifice provided eternal forgiveness. In Hebrews 10:14, we read, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I'm reminded of that great hymn at this point. What can wash away my sin? What is it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. By the time we get to Genesis 6, we read of the Nephilim, those demons that entered into men cohabitating with females to produce a mongrel race, a mongrel progeny that would not be totally human and thus destroy the human line from which Christ would eventually come to be perfect God and perfect man. This, of course, was a wickedness so heinous that God permanently bound those demons, according to 2 Peter 2.4, in chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. In fact, Jude 6 tells us that he did this because they did not keep their proper domain. And finally, in Genesis 6-5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness on man or on the earth with man was so great that every intent of their thoughts, in other words, everything in their imagination was only evil continually. So he says, I'm going to blot them all out. And again, as we chase, as we trace the genealogical record in Genesis we see that 1,656 years after God created Adam, He destroyed the entire world. Many theologians estimate that the population of the world at the flood was about 7 billion. All except eight people who, according to the words, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Of course, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. And then, 100 years approximately after the flood, we see Satan once again trying to establish his kingdom on earth, trying to do so through Nimrod at the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar, which is the land of Iraq today, that same region where the Garden of Eden once was, 
By the way, because of the flood and the catastrophe of that day, the cataclysmic catastrophes of that time, that's why we have so much oil in the Middle East, because that was where the original garden once stood. It was in this Tigris and Euphrates River area that the first battle on earth was fought between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. By the way, the last battles will be fought there as well, if you know anything about prophecy. That was the place, dear friends, where the first lie was told. That was the place where the first animal was cursed, as God cursed the serpent, symbolizing Satan. That was the place where the first separation from God occurred, where the first promise of enmity and conflict between mankind and Satan occurred where the first murder was committed, where the first grave was dug. But it was also the place where a coming Savior and conqueror was promised. A promised seed given to Adam and Eve, as we learned in Genesis 3.15. Now hang on, we're still traveling here. It was in this land of Shinar, according to Genesis 10-11, through that Satan tried to establish his earthly kingdom. In that Tower of Babel, and out of the Tower of Babel, we discover a complex of all of the pagan religions of the world. All of them were spawned from that particular place. You trace all of the pagan religions today back to that time in ancient Babylonian cultism. By the way, later it was in that same area that Nebuchadnezzar built his great empire of Babylon. Satan never gives up, does he? And of course, today in that region of Iraq and Iran and all of the Middle Eastern nations there that are dominated by Islam, there it remains to be the most hostile region in the world with its vicious hatred of God's covenant people, the Jews, who indeed have turned their back upon him at this point, but will someday be saved as well as their hatred for God's chosen people, the church. And it's fascinating that as we read Scripture, we see that all through redemptive history, the theater of operations for the two conflicting kingdoms is always in the same general area. It's in the Middle East, the birthplace of false religion. So Satan's plan was foiled. God intervened. He is the sovereign one, once again, whose plans that were decreed before time even began, his plans cannot be thwarted. And then God later reveals even a more graphic illustration of the need for an eventual perfect sacrifice to make atonement for sin, a lamb that only God himself could supply. A divine provision to fulfill the promise that he had given to Adam and Eve that he would give her a seed that would crush Satan's head. And we read about that in Genesis 22. There we have the story of Abraham where God chose a family through which he would make good on his promise. Promising in Genesis 12 verse 3 that through him, through Abraham, he would make a great nation and bless him. And later on, he said, and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the way, folks, a very sober reminder that we should never turn our backs on Israel. 
You will remember that Abraham was commanded to take his only son, Isaac, or his precious son, I should say, Isaac, to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is the place of dispute today in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There he was asked to strike a fatal blow to God's covenant to bless him, to bless all of the world through him. There he was asked to, shall we say, cut off the promise of a Messiah and to destroy all of his personal hopes and dreams. And yet we know that Abraham exercised enormous faith. There you will recall Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And we know that God did. In fact, in verse 14 of that text, we read that Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. There God revealed something more about the scarlet thread, and that is that the sacrifice that he required could only be one that he would provide. Well, many years later, we learn more of this Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, you will remember that marvelous story of redemption when God poured out his judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the killing of their firstborn. Remember that the families had to take into their homes, an unblemished male lamb. They had to love it. And then they had to, they were ordered to kill it at twilight, which, by the way, was the same time and on the same day that Jesus later was crucified. And we can even look down through the annals of history and we see that many of the Jewish families, even to this day, when it comes to that time, even though they don't understand that Jesus was the Passover, they continue to kill the Passover lamb. But it's fascinating how many of them will take that lamb into their home. They will love it. And then at the precise time, the family will come and they will each put some of their weight on that little lamb. Then they will slit its throat and it will fall to its death. An almost unbearable act of an innocent life being yielded up for the guilty. Even as Christ yielded up His life, the just for the unjust. I think of Paul's words to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said that God made Him, referring to the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And you will recall on that first Passover night, those people were to put the blood of that lamb on the lintel and the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over. The blood of the lamb would secure their homes. Those who had faith in him would be spared. And then on that dreadful night, at midnight, the Lord of hosts went forth and glorified himself as he exercised divine judgment on the proud and the haughty Egyptians. And suddenly they experienced the wrath of the Lamb. And in that amazing scenario, we learn yet something more about our scarlet thread. And that is that the only acceptable sacrifice must be an unblemished Lamb, a perfect Lamb, 
again, a picture of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that would someday come. And today, of course, Christ is our Passover, a memorial that Christ himself instituted in what we celebrate as communion or the Lord's Supper. And then at the close of the Old Testament, after 400 years of silence, when God had not revealed himself to the apostate, idolatrous people of Israel, one night on a Bethlehem's hillside, an angel appeared to shepherds that were tending sheep that were to be sacrificed at Passover. And there we read of the glorious Shekinah of God, that brilliant, dazzling, ineffable light of His glory appeared to the angels. And there we read in Luke 2 that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel said, don't be afraid, I bring you good news. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Dear friends, don't you see the scarlet thread? How can you miss it? Later in John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he said to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, according to Scripture, He being the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Peter later understood this in 1 Peter 1.19. He tells us how that we weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but he says with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Oh, child of God. All of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, we should fall on our faces before a sovereign God who has ordained and orchestrated all things for our good and His glory. Amen? Well, this brings us to our text. And here we will see three things in this text here in Matthew. We will see a betrayal and blackmail. We will see, secondly, torture and suffering. And thirdly, we will see victory over death. But first, let me give you a bit of the context here. In Matthew 20, verse 17, we read that as Jesus was and as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. Now, we know, according to verse 29 of this text, that Jesus had crossed over, as you would look at it, if this is uh, the, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, he had crossed over to the east side of of the Jordan And he was making his way over to Jericho. Now, it was common for the Jews to do this. They did not want to go on the other side where the Samarians were because they wouldn't want to be defiled by those nasty Samarians. So they would go all the way around, go all the way down 1,000 feet below sea level, 2,500 feet below Jerusalem. And then they would gradually make their way up that grueling climb up to Jerusalem. Thus, the scripture would say they were going up to Jerusalem. Those of us that have been there, you know what it looks like. I have made that climb. However, I was in a bus 
be that as it may, it was a steep climb up the Wadi Kilt, 2,500 feet. And it's interesting that Mark's Gospel tells us in Mark 10, verse 32, that Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Literally, the people that were with him, especially the disciples, they were bewildered, they were confused, and they were utterly terrified. They thought that they were all going to go to Jerusalem and die. Because they knew how hostile the Pharisees and many of the Jews were towards Jesus. You see, they, like many people today, wanted to reinvent Jesus. They wanted a different kind of Jesus. They didn't want a Jesus that was going to suffer and die. They wanted a Jesus that was going to give them stuff like the kingdom. They wanted a Jesus that would make them happy and make them healthy and make them wealthy and give them a purpose-driven life. They wanted a Jesus that would make them successful, make them powerful, help them to rule and reign. That's what they all wanted. They didn't want to have to have a Jesus that would ask them to submit to maltreatment and to suffer and to deny themselves, to take up a cross. They didn't want that. So it's like, what is he thinking? Here he is, Jesus, going on ahead of them. The disciples following along thinking, my, we're just going to die. And of course, along with them were all of the thrill-seeking crowds waiting to see what was going to happen next. But friends, the Lord Jesus came to do what He agreed to do in eternity past, right? He came to do the will of the Father to glorify Him. So with resolute determination, the Lamb of God marched towards the altar. In fact, in Luke 9.51, we read that Jesus had resolutely set His face to go to Jerusalem. And so knowing the disciples' confusion and aware of the self-indulgent and thrill-seeking multitudes that follow along who were all looking for a lion, not for a lamb, Jesus comes along and He takes His disciples aside That's why the text here says that on the way he said to them, verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And friends, here we see, number one, betrayal and blackmail. Of course, the term delivered is a reference to Judas's kiss of death that would eventually betray him. But here we also witness the treachery of blackmail. You see, since the Jewish leaders, the religious elite of the day, could not execute anyone without Roman approval, and since they were unable to convince Pilate that Jesus deserved to die, now mind you, I'm talking about things that were yet going to happen, Since that was the case, they had to blackmail Pilate. And so they came up with a great scheme, certainly motivated and inspired by Satan himself. They said, well, you know what? Since Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews, he's got to be a traitor. So we read in John 19, 12, They said to Pilate, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. 
checkmate. Now what are you going to do, Pilate? So Pilate, I'm sure, was shaking in his sandals, thinking, uh-oh, I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to do something with this Jesus. But again, all of this was according to God's plan, dear friends. May I remind you again of Peter's words in Acts 2.23, where he says that he was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So, here Jesus predicts the betrayal and blackmail that would soon come, but He also predicts His torture and suffering. And folks, I have to pause for a moment. This is amazing to me as I think about it. Here, these religious leaders were planning to kill Him, and the Lord knew that. That was all a part of the plan. But these were the spiritual elite of the people of the covenant. The Lord came unto His own, and His own received Him not. These are His own kinsmen. And yet in verse 19, He says that they will deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify Him. By the way, we can look back 600 years before that event occurred, and we read Isaiah's prophecy about that future Passover lamb. Once again, another example of the scarlet thread. May I read that to you in Isaiah 53? Again, a prophecy that, a, that was spoken 600 years before Christ died. Here's what the Spirit of God said through the prophet Isaiah. He, referring to Jesus, has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And beloved, the torture of a Roman scourging would kill most people. And by the way, they would often do that before you even had a trial. But it's interesting how the Lord withstood that terrible scourging. And certainly the enormous stamina that Jesus had because he had a perfect body, an unfallen body. A body that, that was untainted by any form of sin's decay or weakness. Because of that enormous strength that he had, he was able to not only endure a horrific scourging where they would whip you with a whip that would have pieces of bone and metal that would just rip out parts of the flesh and the vessels and many times expose the organs. But not only was he able to withstand that, but he was able to carry a cross and even stay upon that cross 
And it wasn't until he yielded up himself that he died. But certainly, we see the scarlet thread in all of this as we think of the blood that oozed from the sacred wounds. And we even think of the texts that tell us that the Roman cohort that guarded him stripped him. And we read that they put a scarlet robe on our precious Savior. And they put a crown of thorns upon his head. And then they kneeled before him and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat upon him and they took reeds and they hit him upon the head, driving his crown of thorns into his head. But dear friends, the physical and the emotional torture that the Lord Jesus would someday experience for which He is here predicting, was nothing compared to the spiritual torture that He experienced. The greatest suffering of the Lord, I believe, was His rejection that He experienced from the Father when He had to bear the sins of all who would believe, when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But there was also great comfort, great hope in the words that Jesus spoke privately to His little huddle of twelve as they were passing along, making their way to Jerusalem. He gave them words of victory over death. In verse 19, at the end of the verse we read, And on the third day, He, referring to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, will be raised up. What precious hope there is in all suffering. Certainly later the disciples would understand this clearly. They didn't then. In fact, it was just a little time after this that Peter would deny Him three times. But friends, we rejoice in the reality of what Jesus is saying here. That because He would be raised the third day, He would prove to the world that He is victorious over death. He is victorious over Satan. And He is victorious over sin. Beloved, we're on sacred ground here. Because at this point, Jesus Christ was predicting the glory of the cross. The apex of redemptive history. And I hope you see that first and foremost, and I really want want you to catch this. First and foremost... Christ died for God. We're just secondary. He died primarily for God. Our salvation is something secondary, as glorious as it is. You see, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He he came to glorify Him. He came to do what was ordained and decreed in the throne room of heaven in eternity past. And when you think about it, even when we are saved, we are saved for what reason? To worship Him. To glorify Him. It's all about the Father. It's all about the glory of God. That's why we see that Jesus died to put God's glory, to put His grace, To put His righteousness on display. That's why in Romans 3.25 we read that God displayed Jesus publicly. 
as a propitiation, or again, a satisfaction, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Folks, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we read over and over how Jesus is praying, how that He wants help because He came to glorify the Father. Someday, according to Philippians 2.11, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And the text goes on to say, to the glory of God the Father. Not to our glory. It's not about us. Peter understood this later in 1 Peter 4.11. He said, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. And he goes on to say, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now catch this. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, as we close this morning, may I challenge you. Guard yourself from all of the self-focus that is so prevalent in modern evangelicalism today. Our salvation is about God and His glory and only secondarily about the wonderful benefits that we have. It's all about Him. Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty demanded by the Father that He might be glorified. And again, we are saved that we might glorify Him forever. We want to be careful of the distorted and shallow, and I believe even deceptive invitations that so many people give. Oh, come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, you know, at some level He does, but my goodness, that's, that's not the primary reason we come to Jesus. Come to Jesus so you can have purpose in your life. So you can be more successful. So you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise. So that you can have that new Mercedes. And all that silly stuff. And as a result of that, people come to Jesus looking for a blesser, not a Savior. They come to Him because they are filled with self-love. And they are self-absorbed. And they live out their Christian life self-absorbed and self-centered. And they don't understand what it means to live to the glory of God. And the glorious truths of God's sovereignty and His holiness have been utterly eviscerated in most of what is preached today. And most of what is lived today in Christian circles. It is a sham and a stench into the nostrils of God. It's so dangerous, dear friends, to have a religion that is man-centered, as Robert Schuller says we need to have, rather than one that is God-centered. And I hope you can see by just a few of the things that I've tried to communicate this morning that all of history is about God and His glory. It's not about man and his needs. That is such a secondary thing. As glorious as it is. Dear friends, the vastness of His sovereign love and of His grace exceeds the limits of human comprehension. And it should therefore heighten our worship beyond any preoccupation with self. It should cause us to humbly gaze into the face of a holy and sovereign God and to look more fully into the ineffable glories of a triune God. Beloved, everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we have 
is for His glory. Everything that we utter from our mouths, everything that we wear, everything that we buy, everything should be for His glory. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, uh, 31, that whether then you, you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all what? For the glory of God. So I want to call you back to these wonderful truths today that we might live in light of these amazing realities that are ours who belong to Christ Jesus through no merit of our own. So that, dear friends, all of us can rejoice together in the confident care of a sovereign God who has loved us with an everlasting love whose plan cannot be thwarted. And then with the Apostle Paul, after he had reflected on these glorious truths of salvation for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, then with him we can say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that the words that we have heard today are so lofty in the sense that they are so profound that sometimes they can leave us a bit confused. Because, Lord, indeed, they are so far beyond the way we think. We have been so blinded and so deceived by sin in this fallen world that sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the glorious truths that You have given us in Your Word. And, Lord, although I fear the weight of these truths break the backs of the words that bore them, I nevertheless find great confidence knowing that Your Word will never go forth without doing what it has been predetermined to do. And so, Lord, I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You will penetrate even the most recalcitrant heart. Lord, even the most hard heart that is here today, I pray that You will just blow right through all of the deceit, all of the pride, all of the foolishness that would try to find wisdom in some other place than in Your divine revelation. And Lord, I pray that if there be one here today that does not know You as Savior, as Lord, as King, Lord, I pray that You will overwhelm them with such conviction that You will not give them any rest upon their pillow until they bow their knee before the cross and cry out for the mercy that You will give them that today even, Lord, they will experience the miracle of the new birth. And Lord, for the rest of us that know and love You, may we live to Your glory that You may be all in all in who we are and that the world will see Your glory reflected in us. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and in the power of His Spirit to the glory of the Father. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.